Well, you can say hi if you want to. Hi, this is Howdy. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hi, this is Greg Lamont. Welcome to the Velocast. Nice, really nice, yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to the Velocast. Today we'll be previewing the 72nd Giro d'Italia and looking at the riders and teams who took to the start line way back in 1989. But let's start with the route. Announced in January of 89, the race was to be 3,418 kilometres across 22 stages, including one split stage. It contained four time trials, three of which were individual and one team event, and peppered throughout a total of 14 stages offered up 35 categorised climbs. Adding insult to injury, the organisers said there were also not to be any rest days. Ah, they don't make them like that anymore, and thank God, says anyone with an ounce of humanity. You know, I picked this race because I remember really enjoying it. I mean, 89 was just a, a blue ribboned year in terms of the Grand Tours. Um, but as I've dug into it, doing the research as we, we prep for next week's shows, I really picked a corker. I mean, it's packed full of action. And a lot of that comes from uh, the back of a lot of criticism that the organisers had got where they'd, you know, they'd changed the courses to make it easier for Francesco Moser to beat Laurent Fignon, for example, um, or Giuseppe Cerrone, those guys who were absolute champions but weren't maybe uh, the paradigm of Grand Tour winners. The Italian organisers had, let's say, tweaked the courses. And this, to me, looks like a rebound to that. Because we've got stage with mountains after stage with mountains. Uh, There's barely a flat stage in the race. um, And three really crucial summit finishes, which the first of them certainly will be very familiar to listeners already. So it was an absolutely fantastic three weeks, but it wouldn't have been that without this course. And again, you have to remember that in those days, this came after the Vuelta. So we'd already seen the form of some of the riders, although there wasn't a huge amount of crossover, but it was absolutely in the heart of the Grand Tour season. So the riders weren't coming into it unknown. You know, they knew their form. They were racing it in the way that we see people race the Tour these days. You know, for many people, it was their big objective of the year. So in 1989, the Tour de France is legendary. I'm pretty sure we'll be talking about that come Tour time. But this Giro was uh, was one of the best of the decade as well. Yeah, I, I kind of dug into this like yourself in preparation for, for actually covering it uh, next week and I mean that that opening set of stats and the fact there was no rest days was, was one that, that leapt out to me um, there's a good little bit on, on Wikipedia which is always usually your kind of starting point for, for delving into things talking about how just difficult this this course uh, was and it was interesting because Moser who you mentioned a minute ago had recently joined the organising committee. So everyone was throwing their hands up in horror and saying, this is a bit hypocritical, Francesco Moser, because you used to complain about how difficult the, the Giro courses were. Here you are in the position to actually affect change and you've made it more difficult again. Um, but I, I mean, famously, Moser had a helicopter behind him in a time trial and it was sat in front of Laurent Vignon. Exactly that, aye. Um, the one thing that also leapt out at me regarding this this year was literally nobody if you look at the press around the time nobody was talking about a possible Italian victory I mean, world champion uh, Maurizio Fondrius was the, the main Italian contender but was only uh, 24 at the time yeah. so 
like the year before, they were expecting a, a foreigner to take the title. Of course, that that foreigner being Andy Hamston and his his famous uh, 1988 Giro victory. Yeah, and Hamston actually came into this race feeling that he had better form than he'd had in 88. I mean, he was really, really up for the fight. We had a, a Greg Lamont, um, to mention another American who was coming back. We really had no idea what was going to happen with Greg. You know, we'd had that incident where his brother-in-law had mistaken him for a turkey and he nearly died, you know, came within minutes of dying, um, came back to the team PDM, just never really found his feet. And for a lot of us, me included, because I mean, remember, I was a big Greg Lamont fan at the time. I genuinely thought that Greg's career might be over. He joined a team that, you know, very few people had even considered. Uh, he barely had a team. Uh, you know, Johan Museo was one of his teammates that year. And we'd seen him really struggle at PDM, who were an established squad. So I really thought he stood no chance at all with, uh, with his new squad. We had Luis Herrera, fantastic Colombian, uh, really one of the Colombian vanguard. He'd won loads of races up to this point, but was already a King of the Mountains specialist, I think. He'd won the Dauphin Libra the year before. He'd won the Mountains classification in the Tour in 87 uh, and 85, um, and had won stages in the Tour. One of Vuelta later in his career in 1991. So this was a classy rider that a lot of people were talking about. There was Phil Anderson, the hugely talented Australian rider. Uh, Phil was a genuine GC contender who I think never really achieved as much as his talent deserved. You know, there were just Eric Broikink, the Dutchman. This was a race absolutely packed with favourites. You know, if we were looking at it through the lens of today, this would be like, well, actually like the, the Giro that Froome won. You know, where it's absolutely packed with the very best riders. And some of them you're not sure about their form. So there was intrigue and we were expecting a big battle. And that's what we got. Uh, coming back to Le Monde for a minute, because it's a really good point. All the talk about Greg Le Monde, as far as the, the lens of history is concerned, focuses, and justifiably so, on the 1989 Tour de France. Mm. But, you know, we, we really do need to... Kind of, not gloss over what you were talking about, how he was seen at the time as a, as a rider coming into to the 1989 season. You talked there about the, the, the famous hunting accident that ended his, his season in, in 1987 and the return to, to PDM in, in 88, still actually with, what was it, 35 shotgun pellets in his, in his body. Yeah. Uh, that season in 88 was marred by tendonitis from overtraining. Mm -hmm. He wanted to come back so desperately that actually marred his, his own season. Uh, Coming into to 1989, his, his form at best was patchy. And actually, there's a, an interesting little start about how he, he ended up on his new team, which you rightly highlight as being one that everybody saw as being weak. It wasn't a team designed to, to win Grand Tours. If anything, it was a team designed very much like uh, Deconic Quickstep these days as, and in winning one-day classics. Mm -hmm. um, but he managed to get that contract signed or I think it was on New Year's Eve and literally hours before he would be compelled to ride for for PDM the next season, a team that he had kind of fallen out with because he, he felt he was being underappreciated and the team itself thought he was maybe yesterday's man and that he couldn't come back. Uh, so he very nearly was compelled to ride for, for that team but managed to, to go to a new team for, for 89. Um, but... 
Coming into 89 and across the early part of the season, as you say, the, the Vuelta had already taken place. His form was was patchy at best. and I mean, not Rubbish, to, I think. I think you're being generous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not to spoil the result of this Giro, but he actually hadn't won a single race coming into the, the Tour. So arguably, Greg LeMond being on anybody's favourites list uh, at, at that time, I think comes out of respect for the rider that he was pre eighty seven, rather than what they felt about him as a as a winning prospect for for nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I mean, you look at Greg's Palmares right from nineteen seventy seven when he won the the National Junior Road Championships in America. There's wins, multiple wins, every single year until eighty six. Eighty six is a magical year, of course. He won the Tour de France. Uh, got lots of other good results as well. He was second in Milan San Remo, third in Paris Nice. Um, so, you know, 86 was a great year. And then there's nothing till 89. And there's only two results in 89, but by God, they're crackers. <laughs> they were good results. Uh, spoiler, <laughs> the Giro isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, the famous one, the other one being actually the, the World Championships, of course, that they took. I mean, so if you're going to win two races in a season, uh, the 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 best tour ever in, in some people's eyes and the world championships are, are certainly the races to take. Uh, one rider I don't think we've mentioned thus far and and again, his, his presence here comes back to an incident in 1987, that being Stephen Roach, mm. former winner of the race, actually returning to the Giro for, for the first time since he'd won uh, that, that race and was expected to be less than well greeted uh, at the start line in 89 after what happened in 87 uh, with his, his teammate uh, Roberto Vincentini. Would you like to explain to the listeners what, what had happened there? Well, 87, of course, was, um, you know, Anis Marabalus for, for Stephen Roach, a, a career year which has only really been equaled by the great Eddie Merckx. Um, and one of his teammates, Roberto Vicentini, and he were, shall we say, having full and frank discussions about who was in the lead of the team during the Giro d'Italia. And Roach actually showed that for all his, his nice man image that would, he had through most of his career, he had that will of iron that we've talked about Grand Tour winners having to have and just decided to take the race by the scruff of the neck. Um, which led to the Italian Tifosi spitting on him, swearing on him, all sorts of nonsense. Um, and he expected to get a lot of grief when he came back to, to Italy. Of course, he, like Le Monde, was coming back from injury. I don't think he was ever the same rider again. But he was still a classy, classy man. And having won two years before, had to be mentioned when you were making a list of the favourites for the race. Still one of the most stylish riders of all time in my name. Yeah, I think it was a, a knee problem, yeah. uh, which which yeah. hampered a, a lot of his, his early season in '89. Um, going to to a doctor in Munich uh, to to see about that. Um, let's let's move on to to some of the the other riders. Then uh, you mentioned Luis Herrera and, and a fantastic Palmares that um, the, the Colombian had, and and I think it's worth talking about him because of this this era, the late 1980s. So what was then termed the, the rise of the Colombians. Yeah, people like Fabio Parra, uh, Herrera himself. And this is the era where the myth came about that Colombians could claim but they couldn't descend, which persists even to today. You know, even though you've got people like Nairo Quintana attacking on, you know, the, the, the descents of claims in bad weather, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, so... 
the Colombian and the Cafe de Colombia with the Colombian flag. It was an iconic thing in my memory from those years. Um, and actually laid down, you know, the, the very footprint which has been stepped in by the likes of Egan Bernal and Nairo Quintana now. And they added so much to the races because they made it unpredictable. You know, they didn't race according to the standard tactics of the peloton. They raced the way they felt. They raced the way they wanted. And that absolutely infuriated riders like uh, Bernardino in particular. He used to, you could see him getting visibly angry when the likes of Herrera would dance off the front. You know, you'd almost think, I'm in charge of this peloton. What the hell do they think they're doing? So they were a breath of fresh air into a sport that was, it was still magnificent, but maybe would have been a bit duller in the 80s without them. And Eric Broikink, you you talked about a, a minute or so ago, it was worth highlighting that, that he came into to this race uh, having really good results in, in the previous two years, uh, third in 87 and then second in 88. And, and if you're Eric Broikink coming into the, the 89 Giro, you're looking to go one better there. This is a race that you feel you should be winning because of your, your results, as I say, in the past two years. Yeah, Broikink's kind of like a slightly worse Phil Anderson for me. Um, he was a rider who I always expected to win a big one. Um, and he never really fulfilled the promise that we'd seen. Um, Anderson, I think, achieved more of the success that we expected. Broikink, maybe not so much. Uh, but he was always... It was one of those ones where you have to mention him because he could win, and if you don't, you're going to look stupid. Do you know what I mean? A kind mm-hmm. of really solid uh, B-tier Grand Tour contender rider who, given the right kind of perfect storm of events could easily take one of the big wins. Uh, he, he deserves to be watched. We should also say there were some uh, young up-and-comers in this race who were who were quite useful. Uh, there was a, a young sprinter called Mario Cipollini who would go on to do quite good things. And uh, this strange Danish bloke called Bjarne Ries. It is bizarre how, you know, we, we kind of consign the late 80s to being one era and you know the, maybe the late 90s and and, and noughties to to another and, and it always kind of raises an eyebrow when you see how much of a crossover there was in t- in terms of riders i mean neither at this point in their career were, were anything like what they'd become, of course, but it, it, it still kind of takes you back sometimes when you see riders like Bjarne Ries being in the 1989 Giro uh, peloton and, and, and you know, as you say, Mario Cipollini, bizarre. Uh, one rider I don't think we've talked about enough um, about, of course, was, was one of my big hero is Laurent Fignon yeah. uh, two-time winner of the, the tour and was, was coming to the, the Giro for the first time since 1984 and, and that controversial loss to uh, Francesco Moser that you spoke about uh, Yeah, I mean had been I don't think I've ever seen a rider who was as capable as Fignon winning those tours in the early, um, early 80s. I mean remember it's a rider who had the sheer effrontery to laugh in the face of Bernardino when he closed down one of Eno's attacks. Um, Reedy's book, you know, when we were young and carefree, is the English translation, and it's absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, it's... <sighs> he was a rider with such... It's a word we've argued about, isn't it? Panache. He just rode with such a, a beautiful style, you know, flat back, that ponytail flying in the wind, glasses at a point where most of the riders went, you know, without glasses. So that made him stand out in the peloton. A, a, such a lovely pedalling action and such a perfect sense of tactical 
Louse is that word we've used so often. You know, capable of winning Milan San Remo or dominating in the mountains of the Tour de France. A useful time trialist, although as later in this year we'd show, not quite useful enough. Yes, um, but just a brilliant all-round rider. And I actually didn't like Laurent at the time. And the reason I didn't like Laurent is he was Greg's biggest com- competition. Yeah, and, and, and being... that's, that's precisely for, for me, but the opposite way around. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't like Greg LeMond. I've got no reason not to like Greg LeMond. I've, I've since met the guy. He's, he's really, really personable. Lovely. Uh, but the only reason I didn't like Greg LeMond in, 19, in the 1980s was because I preferred Laurent Fignon. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest thing I can say about Fignon is I always thought he was about six foot one. And in fact, he was only about 5'8". Um, I'm 5'8 I'm tall enough. I mean, I'm not being dismissive of people who are 5'8". But he, no, but he always, doesn't strike you as being no. someone that, that was under six foot. Yeah, he looks... Like, and that is just the sheer force of his personality, I think. One of the great champions. You know, in that Renault Elf team with uh, Eno, Fignon um, and, and Le Monde, arguably the best team since, you know, Eddie Merckx had put together some of his absolutely dominant Molteni squads. He was just, looking back, he's one of my favourite riders. You know, even in the end of his career, when he was a shadow of what he'd been before, where he was riding for uh, Gatorade Chateau d'Ax, he still managed to look like somebody who on his day could surprise anybody. Uh, just a, a magnificent rider. And to see him come back from knee injuries that had been, ironically, you know, every bit as bad as the ones that had played Bernardino, who during his comeback was laughed at by, by Laurent Fignon, it was really good to see him come back to the kind of form where people were genuinely talking about him as the clear favourite for the Tour de France. Uh, and in this race, he showed that he was justifying that kind of faith. One of the greats, I mean, if you've come to the sport recently, please just go on YouTube and enter Laurent Fignon as a search term and waste half an hour or an hour just watching the man. You'll see actually one of the worst crashes I've ever seen, not in terms of injury, but his crank breaks off. And he just hits the deck hard. Um, and it, 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 I wince thinking about it as I watch his genitals bounce off the stem before he hits the ground. So don't watch that one, but watch all of the other ones. <laughs> yes. Um, and talking about, you know, riders who who came to, to this, never mind race, but but season with, with poor form. Lauren Fignon's another one. You, you talked just or, or touched on how uh, after 1984 he... He really wasn't the, the same rider and been plagued by injuries. But but coming into the the latter part of the eighties, starting in eighty eight, you know he won Milan San Remo, which he then went on to win again in nineteen eighty nine. And as you say, it really it was the return of the great Lionel Fignon. And even before and 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 throughout this race, he was seen as as the favourite for the Tour de France um, that would come up in, in in July, and and I guess like. Um Sorry, just Stephen thinking Roach. it, a French favourite of the Tour de France. I'm uh, old enough to remember them. Astonishing, I know. Um, and like we were talking about with, with Greg LeMond earlier, another rider that was actually coming into to the race where if there was a weak point as well as 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 form it was in his team he he didn't really have the the, the team to to back him up should things go sideways for him during the, the three weeks of the race no i mean he'd moved on to that rally team uh, with the strip which you know the system use strip which would become so familiar um and 
you know, he had riders in the team who were capable. I mean, we saw that actually with Bjorn Rees, who started to show the kind of form that would lead towards, you know, him becoming a team leader in the years to come. But if you look at them, you wouldn't really have thought, well, you know, that that's that's your absolutely killer squad, would you? Um, so, yeah, I mean, Fignon, there were doubts about, but I think fewer doubts about him as a rider than the likes of Greg. You know, he really looked like he was a man in the up and up again. Whereas at that point, as I say, I thought Greg, there was a very good chance that Greg's career was effectively over. Uh, another rider that, that we need to talk about then, uh, because he was listed amongst the, the favourite, was was the, the Swiss rider Urs Zimmermann. Uh, but like a lot of the other riders, and I guess this is something that we do to, to this day, of course, there's a caveat to uh, their, or a barrier to them being pronounced as, as a, a, an out-and-out favourite. Um, Urs Zimmermann was a contender only if the time trials where 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 he could limit losses, so essentially a kind of late eighties Roman Bardi. Thinking back to races of those days, my main memories of Zimmerman are being off the front at a point where it was entirely inappropriate to be so. Um, you know, he was a strong rider. He'd won uh, Swiss national championships in eighty six. The same year he won the the Dauphiné and the Criterium International. Uh, in eighty eight, the year before, he'd won the Giro del Trentino. So he was a strong, strong rider, you know, take nothing away from him. But he always seemed to make some kind of tactical cock-up or be in a group with riders who were simply just that wee bit stronger than him. So yeah, he was worthy of a mention, but he would definitely be a two-star favourite if we were going by the current five-star, you know, method of ranking them. And going right the way back to to the star as as we were and, and the route itself, I mean, that... I mean, you're going to love this because there's four time trials in it. Obviously. In fairness, there is, a, as I mentioned, a, a team competition. But one of the, the time trials was essentially an uphill time trial. It was a mountain stage uh, where it was a, a summit finish for, for the year. Um, weirdly, though, when you look at the press at the time, they say this is a route for the climbers, despite the fact there's four time trials in it. I think it's because every second, or actually most of the stages are, are stages classified with mountains, not even medium mountain days. I mean, one of the stages with mountains, which is a, a stage we'll discuss at some length, um, you know, had absolutely iconic stages on it, um, or absolutely iconic mountains on it. The stage sixteen, um, things like the Gavia, which was going to be the Chimacopi that year. Uh, the time trial was a seven mile uphill time trial. One, uh, well, we won't do any spoilers. So it definitely was a climber's uh, a climber's route. Certainly compared to previous years, as I said at the start, I think we're coming off the back of a number of years where maybe the Giro had had its teeth pulled a wee bit to try and make it more favourable for Italian riders. But going back at those points, this wasn't actually that much time trialling for a tour. They knew how to organise a race then. You know, there was none of this poxy 25 mile time trial in one day. You had a team time trial, then you had a 23 mile time trial, then a mountain time trial, and you finished off with a 33 mile time trial. How much more entertaining can you get? Well, plenty much if you ask me, but that's because I don't like time trials. Um, but as I say, this is still a route that's, that's peppered with, with climbs to, to keep me happy. Uh, and, you know, not not to spoil anything, as, as it's been a theme across this show, there was some fantastic racing throughout. So I, get, I hope we've, we've whetted your appetite for... Actually, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we finish. Sorry to butt in. Not at all. And it's the fact that um, I've been talking to people on Twitter 
relatively recently about a film called American Flyers, which is a truly terrible film with Kevin Costner as a, you know, a champion cyclist. The, the best thing about it is the, the, his team are riding red specialised alleys, which is one of my favourite bikes of all time. Um, and in that, there's a, a caricature Russian squad who are led by a man who looks like he can climb a flight of stairs, never mind a first cat climb. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they are, they are the archetypal baddies. And in this race, we've got the Alpha Lum STM team with names that you'll recognise, actually, people like Dmitry Konyshev and Vladimir Pulnikov, Pyotr Ugramov, who we saw in the tour, I think in 93 particularly, was there. So classy, classy riders. But they were all Russians, or sorry, Soviets. Soviets, yeah, because yeah, this um, is pre-fall uh, yeah. of the Berlin Wall. And, um, and um, yeah, it's an interesting point that, you know, we're in a Soviet era and, you know, the big baddies are coming to, to, to race the, the Giro d'Italia. Well, I could be wrong, but I think this was the first year they were allowed to race professional races. And, you know, they'd forged that alliance with Italy in terms of sending the riders over there to develop them in the road race circuit. And there are still strong, strong ties between former Soviet states and, you know, the Italian squads in terms of sending the riders to develop there. But this Alpha Lum team, um, it was like that team in, in American Flyers. <laughs> you know, it was just like the Russian army have arrived to take over the Giro. <laughs> Uh, and before we go, I was just saying that, you know, hope we've whetted your appetite for, for us talking about this this race next week, uh, as we'll do across Monday, Wednesday and, and, and Friday. Uh, but a couple of other things to talk about coming right back to, to the present day, uh, where, where things are, are a whole lot less exciting than, than they were back in 1989. The UCI have announced a revised calendar. And and maybe I'm being unfair when, when saying that things are less exciting because if you look at that calendar exciting certainly a word but maybe not in a way that we would expect to be using it because we're using exciting in I'd, I'd say a largely pejorative sense um, I don't think they've given any consideration to logistics when they've been and I'm, I'm making the bunny ear sign here planning it uh, there are bits where teams have to be on opposite sides of the country in consecutive days. Um, races overlap, the Vuelta and the Giro overlap, uh, and, you know, the, and Paris-Roubaix overlaps with both of them. Um, the only good thing I can see is that the, the Tour de Hongi goes ahead, so you'll get to see the beautiful Kars geology, which I talked about at length, you know, in Guilin, where they also do some lovely food, and there's a beautiful lake where people sing in the evening. And, you know, at least we've got one race in a country that's relatively safe when it comes to the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Waters making the, the point just on the back of this that they appear to have put quantity before quality. And, you know, it's, it's hard to agree with Jonathan Waters usually, but I kind of feel that he's right here, that yeah. they've just essentially tried to throw as much in as possible. Of course, the, the, the massive caveat here is the reason for, for its development in the first place, coronavirus. And, and I think we'd be safe in saying that the likelihood is a, a lot of these races simply won't go ahead. Yeah. And I, I, I fully appreciate why they're, you know, they're throwing these calendars together. And I, I fully expect another one next month, uh, which will be even more compressed. You know, you'll have riders having to race twice in the same day in different countries or something just to get the races done. Um, and lighthearted aside, this is all about finances. 
And I don't mean that in a money-grabbing, avaricious way. I mean that in the sport needs money. In its current form, the sport runs on relatively short-term cash flow. And what they're trying to do here is try and recoup as much of what this horrible, horrible pandemic is costing them. Now, I sympathise with that. I completely sympathise with that. But this is just... I mean, it, quality over or quantity over quality just begins to cover it. Um, it's good to see that there's a lot of women's races, you know, not being ignored. Although I have, I feel really guilty about this. I was saying this the other day. I'm half convinced that the only reason there's a women's Paris-Roubaix is because somebody in uh, Eagle didn't realise there wasn't one. <laughs> and then they've just had to run with it because he put it in the spreadsheet, you know? <laughs> well, that was the point I was going to come on to, the, the first ever women's Paris-Roubaix. And ASO are, are saying that they're, they've put it forward as, as being somewhat of a, I'm paraphrasing here, a, a trial run to see how it goes with the hope that it will be uh, a feature in the calendar going forward, we can only hope. I mean, expectation isn't high, not based on what the women's peloton will do in a, in a women's party ruby, of course, but just what ASO have done with La Course being yeah. the, the the obvious example here. But a women's party ruby just sounds epic. It sounds wonderful. I really hope that goes ahead, even if it doesn't this year. I hope it's a, a, a thing that we can look forward to going going forward. I'm sure members of the, the, the women's peloton are absolutely gagging for the opportunity to to race uh, across the, the pave as they've done for, for a number of years. And, and it was a real delight to see it finally making an appearance on any kind of official documentation. So, so fingers crossed, at least for, for the future of a women's Paris Ruby. Yeah, and Proudhon making noises about a, a Tour de France for women run non-consecutively with the men's, you know, so it's slotted into a different point in the calendar uh, so that it doesn't overburden the already strained resources of the towns that the, the massive Tour Caravan winds its way through. Um, but my problem with this, and I mean, we're people who've put not insignificant amounts of money into women's junior cycling over the years, so I, I paid attention to women's cycling quite acutely, Um Words are easy. We've heard all of these words. You know, we've had all of these promises. Um, what we need now are actions to follow up and confirm those words. So I applaud them looking, you know, to, to fit the women's racing into this putative calendar. I applaud the noises that Prudhomme's making about a Tour de France for women in the future. But when it happens, that's when I'll say thank you properly. Well, thank you, being the theme writer at this minute. Thank you for joining us today as, as we had a quick look at the 1989 Giro d'Italia. Join us again on Monday when we'll cover the first week's worth of stages in the next edition of the Velocast. <laughs> <laughs>